You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. The title of this morning's lesson is Work. Why should I even care? Work. Why should I even care? Now, let me ask you a question as we start off. It's a rhetorical question, so I'm not looking for you to respond back, but to think as I ask this to you Do you like your job? Do you like your job? When you wake up on Monday morning and get ready for work, as most of you will, will you look forward to it? The chance is that many of you won't. For some of you, it's because you're going to wish you had a different job. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you will change your job every 4.2 years. Now, That's changing your job, but staying in the same type of work. Others of you will change your career doing a completely different type of work. And that might be because you wanted a new challenge, you needed a bigger paycheck, you desire to live less stress, live with less stress in your life, you want more flexibility with your life, or whatever the reasons are that you might decide to change careers entirely. For others of you, the reason that you won't look forward to work on Monday is not because of what job you have, but because of the fact that you have to have a job. And you sort of look at like rich people and just wish you could be rich or you didn't have to go to work. You could just seemingly have money without the responsibility to work. And you might look at rich people like, that are well-known, such as Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and almost with confusion wonder, why do they keep working since they already have so much money? which often might indicate that you are associating the motive behind work as being for money. And if you have the money, then why would you continue to work? You would prefer to have freedom and flexibility. You wish you could control your own schedule. If it wasn't for knowing there was any other way to have money to support yourself, you wouldn't want to work because it feels meaningless and insignificant. Well, good news. I'm here this morning to tell you that your job is a gift from God and that he has a plan for you, and that includes the job that you have right now. The first lesson I want to teach this morning is that work was and continues to be God's idea. Work is God's idea. Contrary to what many of us might think, work is not a result of the fall of man. It is not a byproduct of sin, as if to say, in the garden, Before Adam and Eve got all of us in trouble, they were just sort of sitting around pulling grapes off trees, walking around happily naked, nothing to do except just enjoy the sun, didn't have to worry about SPF 15, 30, 45, 115, none of that was a concern. It's not true. It's not how Genesis describes work. Work was first, interestingly, modeled by God himself. Genesis chapter 1 shows a cadence of creation where God is working by creating. 
And then it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, quote, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God is the initial example of work, but work is also commanded by God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in the, back in chapter 1, it says, quote, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then later in verse 28, he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He is speaking about a responsibility, not only geographically, but also responsibly as far as stewarding, caring, working for that creation. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight for good, for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So I just want to be very clear here. Work is God's display of what he does and God's decree of what he tells his creation to do. So work is intrinsically dignified in its association and its command. Association to God and its command by God. So work was his design, and it's a manifest representation. Here's why. Because what I want you to recognize is, goes back to the idea of God making us in his image. Part of God's display of his deity is in his creation. It's a display of his dominion. He, he has all of creation. He is in charge of it, right? I mean, this is what the psalmist repeatedly displays. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. He has prerogative over. He has dominion over all of creation. He is responsible for it. He has prerogative for it. But it also, it's not like he just creates. It also shows his creativity in what he provides. I fairly regularly will say when I'm praying with my family for food, thanking God for it and all the things about food and all the industries that made that food possible, I will say, and I don't mean this in any sort of humorous way that will probably sound humorous to your ears, God, I thank you that all food does not taste like oatmeal, that all food does not taste like grits, like in the display of color and temperature and taste. You, you have the, the ripple effect of a creative God who blesses widely like that. Well, the reason I say this because when God makes us in his image and we exercise dominion as his subjects who have been created in his image, we are displaying this through our work. We are demonstrating our own connection to him and relative relationship from him. Dominion is demonstrated. Creativity is shown. Personhood could be seen. And it was enjoyable. So what happened? Well, it's not until after Adam and Eve sinned that work gets hard. 
And that's often where you and I are making the confusion. When we think of work, we often think of hard work. Now, that's not always true. Sometimes we're just thinking wrongly of work, and we'll get to that in a second. But work gets hard after the fall. In fact, Genesis chapter 3, you can see this shift when God is speaking to the serpent, speaking to the woman, speaking to the man. He says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten of the tree, of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." As one author, Gene Edward Veith Jr. says, work is a virtue, but it is tainted by sin. Work is a virtue, but it is tainted by sin. The reason I want you to realize the origin of work is because in that, I want you to see, number one, it is God's design. Work is God's design. Number two, it is a demonstration of being made in his image. Work is a physical, physical, literal display of you being made in his image as you represent his personhood in your dominion. And number three, there's therefore great dignity in work. We'll speak more about that in a second. Great dignity in work. So as a foundation, number one, work was God's and continues to be God's idea. Number two, your work is your calling. And I do not want you to miss this. This is arguably one of the most significant points I'm going to cover with you this morning because I do think it is paradigm shifting as has been for people historically. Since creation is now fresh in our minds, let me ask you a question. How did the first people get here? Well, nope just like the first people on the planet get here. They got here because God created them. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God formed the man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Yet, here's the key. God did not continue to do this for the rest of creation. Every person that has existed since has not come out of this science experiment divinely orchestrated from dust. Like, oh, here comes another one. Oh, here comes another one. That's actually not what God has done since then. God has not chosen to keep populating the earth this way. He has chosen to create one man and one woman, connect them in the bond of marriage, enable their bodies to procreate. In other words, have children, design their roles as fathers and mothers, and then have them continue to bring forth more people. So it is with work. God miraculously created food for the first people he created. And God has in time, at different times, created food miraculously out of nothing. Israelites in the wilderness. 
manna being provided for them. The thousands on the Sea of Galilee, the, the, the shore with Jesus, with a few loaves of bread and some fish, and he feeds thousands upon thousands, miraculously. But friends, that is exceptional in how God creates food as it is exceptional in how God creates humanity. What does God normally do? What do we see actually normally does? God actually is providing for us today through how he provides in the extension of the people he provides. He provides our daily bread, not through miraculous creation every morning in your pantry with manna being boom, right there. He creates it through vocations, through jobs. Let me explain the significance of this to you to make the connection. Let's take a little walk down history lane here. 500 years ago, it's Germany. You have a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't originally going to be a priest. He was originally going to be a lawyer. He is caught in a thunderstorm, believes he's going to die, cries out to God to spare his life, and promises if God does, he'll commit himself to ministry. He does that, much to his father's dismay, not happy with his decision, becomes a priest, and in his early years of being a priest, he is terrified of God, believing that God can have no relationship with him because he cannot, over, cannot find a way to find peace with God because of his sin. And as a priest, kind of continuing the, the spirit of the confession, he would go to another priest and confess his sins. He would confess his sins so much he would then go back to the priest, having just forgotten more sins, and go back and confess again. He would overwhelm the priest to whom he would confess to as a priest himself, to which a priest would get so tired of his confession and say, why don't you go and commit some real sins before you come back and confess to me? He was overwhelmed. And then, in reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, he was teaching as a priest in his church, God showed him, kind of in the, in the words of Ephesians 2, God made him alive, God showed him the reality of what it meant to be justified by faith alone, that he could have peace with God. And it literally changed his world, as it has for every one of us, to understand the gospel. I mean, literally, to be made a new creation. And it's like somebody had turned on the lights in the room and he could see everything when before he was walking around in the dark. Well, one of the things that happened is that that literally felt like someone had taken the Bible, which he'd been holding up in his hands, seemingly all of his you know, priestly career, and now turning it right side up and realize, oh my goodness, I am seeing things in the word I've never understood before. Because as we understand from what scripture teaches, the spirit of God was given to him and it illuminated him in the things of Christ and now he understood. And he began to teach people and it was amazing. Roman Catholic Church wasn't too happy about it because they started writing and printing. This was the timing of the Gutenberg Press. They bring him in, they want to arrest him and they're worried, uh, his friends are worried that the uh, leaders in the church are going to have him killed. So after the, one of these council meetings, they basically stage his kidnapping. And the uh, rumor is he's probably been, you know, secretly assassinated by the Roman Catholic Church, but doesn't want to be known for it. But nevertheless, it must be true. Turns out his friends kidnapped him, put him in a castle in another part of town, not another part of town, another town. During that time, he's protected by the prince in that area 
where he takes his time, basically in captivity for every year, and he takes the Bible, which was in Latin, and translates it into German, which was not a common practice to have it, so that people could read the Bible themselves. The problem, of course, is that assumes people could actually read. Literacy was not common. Most people could not read. So now they got to teach people how to read, and the best curriculum they could find was now the Bible. So they taught people how to read using the Bible, but now people begin to see for themselves, oh my goodness, there's things in here we never knew were actually here. And this is being taught everything. Everything's changing upside down. Wait, so priests can get married? Nuns can have husbands? Wait, so the priesthood of all believers, we don't have to go to priests to represent us to God and do confession? This changes everything. Well, in the midst of the whole world, it feel like it was changing, even curriculum and education and government. One of the most significant changes that took place and one of the most significant influences of Martin Luther's writing is on this topic of work. Because as the Bible is beginning to be unfolded, it was realized that the Bible does not make a distinction the way that Roman Catholic theology was making a distinction, which is a distinction between secular and sacred. This idea that there is God's holy work, and then there's all this other work. That there is the clergy, known as priests, and then there's the laity, known as the common people where there were two sort of different distinct classes in society. Instead, Luther began to represent from the scriptures that indeed the Bible taught that Christians, all of which have callings, and that those callings are equal in moral and religious seriousness. They only just differ in function. The impact of this was huge. When people understood that their job was indeed a calling from God, it unleashed unprecedented commitment to their work. They now found dignity, they found joy, they found purpose in what they're doing before that otherwise was demeaning and thought of as being insignificant. As Robert Benn writes in his writing, Martin Luther on the vocations of the Christian, Quote, for Luther, Christians were given in the orders of creation into which each Christian was inevitably placed, marriage and family life, work, citizenship, and church. Each person, lay and clergy alike, is called to work in the world. In fulfilling their work gladly and conscientiously, they serve their neighbor. Plain ordinary work is transformed into a Christian vocation as the Christian exercises his faith active in love. Work is no longer simply a job or an occupation. It is a calling. That's what the word vocation means. It actually means calling. It is a summons from God. Vocation is also where the Spirit sanctifies the Christian's life, not in a self-centered search for perfection, but rather in humble service to the neighbor, end quote. So let me go back to the analogy of God creating people and God's creating of food. Now, think about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. When you say to the Lord, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, what are you praying for? You praying for manna? You praying for a miracle? Think with me about what you're praying for. You are praying for a bunch of vocations 
that make that daily bread sit in front of you possible. The farmer, the truck driver, the plant operator, the warehouse worker, the food salesman, the store owner, the stock boy, the cashier, they are a manifestation of answered prayer. God provides for people through vocations. Your vocation, your job is an answer to prayer. You and what you do in your employment is one of God's gifts to creation. Let me say that again so you hear me say that correctly. What you do in your place of employment is one of God's gifts to fellow citizens around you. Not just who you are, we'll get to that in a second, but what you do, your actual employment. There are countless vocations that are displaying God's provision for people. Countless vocations. It is the lawyers, the agricultural scientists, the mechanical engineers, the marketing agent, the electrician, the plumber, the sanitation worker, the banker, the doctor, etc., etc., etc. Friends, this is a game changer. It was for them in the 1500s, and it should still be for us today. This makes us think entirely different about our work, and that's just where I get my paycheck. So I can go do the things I really want to do. If you think like that, it's quite likely you're thinking not just wrongly, but sinfully about the dignity of how God has actually created you for a purpose and a plan greater than just for your life and for the people immediately known by you as family or friends, but for a larger contributing part of a gift to society in which God is working in. There is not a distinction between secular and sacred. The dominion mandate is on display every single day. Now, just as a side note here, when I say that your work is your calling, I'm not saying you can't leave your current place of employment. There might be reasons to make that transition, that change. However, however, pastorally, let me also say this since we're on this topic. It's also possible you should stay at your place of employment. It is not uncommon today because of sort of the psychologizing of self and the elevation of self-satisfaction being preeminent that the way that we subjectively assess our happiness, our contentment, our satisfaction being king, that whenever we feel like that is off, we should now take that as a sign from God that we are indeed actually being led by him to go do something else. Well, may I just ask you to go back to what I taught on two weeks ago about biblical decision-making in the voice of God and how to make decisions. But just to say something briefly on that, it's also possible that you're just in a season of discontentment or difficulty, and part of your own personal maturity is to work through that and stay right where you are. To realize that any other place of employment will have the same thing that where you are currently right now. Lazy coworkers and difficult bosses and hard days and late nights and 
Welcome to adulthood, friends. That will be true no matter where you are. So there's a place to consider, but I want you to recognize the significance of what your work actually is. Your work is a gift. Your work is a calling from God. You are an answer to prayer. And people don't even know to look at you and what you do in your profession and say, thank you for fulfilling a display of the dominion mandate of what God has provided for us that dates, dates all the way back to Genesis. I mean, think about this one, right? How often today do we think of like webpages like Ancestry.com? Like, how do I, where do I, where do I trace my roots out genealogically? You ever thought about how to trace your roots out vocationally? Tracking the tree of where your place of employment traces back to? People don't typically think like that, understandably. But there is great significance to what it is indeed that you are providing through your place of employment. So by way of review, number one, work was God's idea. Number two, your work is your calling. Number three, your work is your primary way of showing love for neighbor. Now I say primary because I'm referring to the amount of hours spent. I don't say primary because I'm trying to triage your work as being of greater importance in your role as a husband, of greater importance in your role as a church member of your local church, of greater importance in your love with your family. That's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm saying is just the sheer volume of time that most of you spend within a week in your place of employment is your primary way of showing love for neighbor. Now, I've got this broken down for you in sort of four ways you can see that this is shown. Number one is your contribution. Your primary way of showing love for neighbors, number one, by your contribution. Now, here's what I mean by this. You are transitioning from childhood to adulthood in the sense that you are transitioning from being provided for, as all children are, to making provision for yourself and in time, providing for others. Now, even if you are single for the rest of your life, not being married, not having children, that will not leave you exempt from providing for others. It is not uncommon as you get older in life that you will be called upon in some small or great way to even make provision for family. Parents, for example, are a common manifestation of this. But the significance here is a principled one where you are recognizing that your transition from childhood to adulthood, from immaturity to maturity, is that you have moved from being a consumer to being a contributor. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, Paul is talking about a life that's pleasing to God. A number of ways in which that's shown, one of which is to show that you are working with your own hands. Now the context is, is he's talking about these busy bodies getting involved in other people's affairs and being idle. But he's talking about working with your own hands, taking responsibility for yourself, learning not to be dependent upon others. Later on to the same church, but in a different letter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he makes this profoundly shocking statement. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. 
It's a significant statement because it says that the default understanding consistent throughout Scripture, seen in Proverbs, testified throughout the, process, uh, throughout the writings and the prophets, is that there is an expectation that you provided for yourself and in charity would help care for others in need. Think of widows and orphans. Think of the, the, uh, the immigrant coming through the land of Israel and how the corners of the field are being left for them to be able to harvest and have that food. So you're learning knowing to provide for yourself, you're learning to provide for others. And this is significant because it's a part of your maturity, is your contribution. So part of your love for neighbor is that you don't keep asking your neighbor to provide for you. You are not a tax on society. But you're actually contributing to it. Second way that which you're showing your love for neighbor is your integrity. Your integrity. And by this, I specifically mean to emphasize your integrity as an employee to your employer. That you are working for the good of your employers. Now, here's why this is significant. Because as a Christian, you recognize that your identity and your future are secured not by that employer, but by your Heavenly Father. This means you're not looking to your employer to provide that in some type of bartering of services, exchanging of motives and relationships, or financial transactions. That means you are now free to be liberated as an employee. Why? Because you do not need to be held hostage by your employer. You can work heartily with integrity before the Lord for the good of your employer. You can be glad for your employer to flourish, partly because of your contribution you're not stealing money out of the cash register, that you're not being lazy on your work shifts, that you are being responsible with your deadlines, that you're encouraging your coworkers to contribute accordingly by your example, if not by your encouragement to them. This does not mean you show up to work with an attitude that you're somehow freed from being held hostage by your employer. It means that you're free to work hard with no mixed motives. No mixed motives. See, the significant reality is that, and I mean this in humility, Christians who have a biblical worldview, so I mean to put those in the same sense, if you're a Christian, you should have a biblical worldview, your biblical worldview should be coming from being a Christian, should be the most significant gifts to employers in the city of Miami. It, it's not simply because like, you know, you're kind of be like the most responsible people showing up on time. And you're like, you know, not likely to like steal, you know, the, the office paper from the, you know, the stock room. And you're not likely to, you know, kind of create the, the, the mix of, you know, personal pleasure by having affairs with coworkers and that creates, you know, a mess. It's because you actually desire the good of your employer. And, and you, you understand something about your employer that your coworkers maybe do not. Um, one, that they're sinners. So like they're not they're not omnicompetent and omniwise. So you're not shocked when employers disappoint you with bad decisions. You also recognize because the individuals are corrupted by sin, so are the systems which the individuals operate within. So systems break, ice, computers break, uh, uh, relationships break. That doesn't shock you and surprise you. It can disappoint you and sometimes can surprise you when it manifests itself, but you're not overall shocked by it. So... So surprisingly, you have an amazing way to work within society, not disappointed by what you see, 
but contributing to the help of it for the good of those who are in charge of it. And some of you work in that manifestation yourself as employers. You are actually providing for other families through your employment of other people. You've actually started industries in order to be a blessing, not only what your industry provides as a service or a product, but also because of the people by which you wanted to employ to bless their households. So you're showing love for neighbor by your contribution. You're showing love for neighbor by your integrity. You're also showing love for neighbor by your character. And by this, I mean to kind of thread the needle here. When I, say, when I, I realize in some contexts, integrity and character can be used interchangeably, but I mean it to kind of parse out two different relationships. Your integrity is trying to focus on the good of your employers. Now with your character, I'm trying to focus on how you work alongside other employees. Other employees. They not only have different backgrounds and different worldviews than you, they've had different weekends than you, different days than you, different marriages than you, different relationships than you, different roommates than you have. And yet you get to work right next to them every single day. And the question is, what is it within you that is a display of Christ in you, the new man in you? How do they see that display itself? We talked earlier about service as we're reflecting on our time last time. How do we serve our coworkers? Sometimes serving them is expressing interest in them by asking about their weekend, following up on those conversations, wanting to hear more about them and really taking interest in who they are and what they're doing. It's by showing them patience when they do not perform to the level that you think that they should or that you are by comparison or contrast. It's by demonstrating forgiveness when they display ungodly attitudes, speak ungodly words, and how you forgive them versus complain and grumble against them. My question is when you come home at the end of the day, Will your processing of your day look any different than your non-Christian friends who go home and process their day? Or will it have been as meaningless to you as it was for them, as joyless for you as it was for them, as complaining and grumbling as it was for you as it was for them? Will it be the same? How will love be seen for neighbor? How will courage step up Willing to potentially even lose your job when your HR department makes you want to sign, tells you to sign a document that you in good conscience cannot sign. We have compassion for those who are chronically coming in late because as single parents, they can't figure out how to get their kids to one destination at a certain time that's until they're open to arrive at work at another time that simply can never match up, especially within the rhythm of traffic in Miami. How will your contentment be displayed? How is your character showing a love for neighbor, both by example of godliness and a commendation of the fruit of the gospel in your life? So your work is a primary way of showing love for neighbor because of your contribution, your integrity, your character, and fourth, your witness. These people know you. Or do they really know you? How long have these people worked with you? 
long enough to know that on Monday when they ask how your weekend is, they're probably going to hear our part of the answer they're used to expecting from you, which is how much you enjoyed Sunday and what that means to you. Monday morning at 5.45 in the morning, I usually greet the same 16 group of people. And kind of typical sort of Monday etiquette, whether it's at work or working out or some other commonplace of a breakfast shop or a coffee shop, the question is usually the same, how was your weekend? Do you have any representation in that answer back to what Sunday was for you? Do, you? do you speak of what you did on Sunday, of gathering other Christians and singing of songs and learning of God's word and learning about life and the gift of life, being reminded of a loving God who gave his son? I'm not saying that you've got this five-minute like little ditty that you always do, this sort of monologue you always share, but is there any kind of connection where people know, or is your weekend as generic as theirs? Fine, good, okay. Touching points at a few points, tennis on Friday, hung out with some guys on Saturday, got caught up on my laundry on, on Sunday, didn't get all my errands done, I need to do some things tonight. Is your life really that Christless? Your answer should not be. My point here is not in any way to shame you. My point is to say, if you don't witness, who will? Do you have times with your coworkers where you desire to share meals together? Lunch meals, breaks, coffees. Do you know enough about each other to know how they like their coffee? Which empanada they would choose? Do you know whether or not they just prefer water or otherwise? So that when you go take a break, you bring them back the drink that you know that they'll like. Not to have them think of you as just a nice guy. There's somebody who is thinking of others like Christ has taught you himself. Have they seen you talk about and heard you talk about the scriptures? Have you offered them a chance to get together and read it with you on a lunch break or some other time? Have you asked how you could pray for them? What does your hospitality look like as it relates to your work? When was the last time anybody from work came over to your place? Now listen, my point is not to say, if you love Jesus, you'll have people at your work at your place. Some of you are working mobile, it's just not even possible. And I'm not saying this the only way which you're a witness, but I'm saying is I want to open up sort of the panoramic view of the different ways which you can be connecting with people. In a unique place, unique way. Because where you're going tomorrow is not where I'm going, is not where anybody else around you is going. And not just necessarily mean where you're going physically, it's also where you're going relationally. So, your contribution, your integrity, your character, your witness. Now, let me give you some cautions about work. Six of them. Six cautions about work, some recommended resources, and then your discussion. Caution number one. When thinking about work, be careful of two extremes. Idolatry or idleness. I've touched on this already briefly, but let me just touch on it again to put them now together, because there are two extremes. Idolatry is work is everything. And I attach my identity and my security to this. And this means oftentimes that I find my security in it 
and I'm tempted to overcommit to it. And all I want to talk about and be known for is this. This is idolatry. And the other end of it is idleness. Idleness is where you do not contribute in a meaningful way. You instead want to find any way that you possibly can to contribute as little as possible, including just how you even contribute to it as far as arriving on time or arriving late or leaving early, what kind of contribution you give while you're there, doing minimal expectations, if not less, until being held brought back up to standard versus contributing more and above and beyond. These are two extremes to be aware of. This is where your maturity or your immaturity is tested and seen as unto the Lord. I think sometimes the challenge is, like a child who is asked to clean their room, it's amazing how the parent's presence in the room when that request is made or the parent's absence determines the level of energy the child puts into that endeavor. How well they do it or not well they do it, how much quickly they do it or how quickly they don't do it. A friend, in a very similar way, if you could think about the Lord being present with you by your side, would that change the level of exertion or intentionality you would have with your work or your thought process of what it is? Number two, second caution. You are made from dust, and you will return to dust. That's exactly what the psalmist says. What does this mean by application? You should work with humility and perspective. Humility and perspective. Now, if you're, if you're looking to kind of, you know, get things lined up, put things in perspective, just read the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes will humble you greatly, like, what are we even doing here? What are we even doing? Now, Ecclesiastes is a fascinating study, but it comes as it kind of lands the plane in the very final chapter of Ecclesiastes, talks about in the end is to fear God and keep his commandments. But the reality is to recognize that there is a contribution you make to society, representing God as an ambassador of the gospel. You should do that with humility as to how you view your work and perspective as the significance of that. It doesn't mean it's meaningless. It just means it's, it's temporal. The Lord and his word and his reign are forever. Caution number three, you are not God. Why do I say this? Because your life is limited and so is your ability. Some of you need to learn to rest. You need to learn to rest. Admittedly, this past week, I had to read a book on this. I say had to in that sense that I like, made myself read a book on this. Um, Zeal Without Burnout by Christopher Ashe. And just the significance of just what it means to be recognizing our humanity and the rejection of deity. You just cannot go all the time endlessly in thinking you can do this. And I say this because particularly for singles, for those of you who are single, you will move from one constant place of activity to another. So you'll be engaged with work, looking forward to being in community and activities you also enjoy with people you also enjoy. And you will find your days either out of just sheer delight, which is good, or insecurity, kind of, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, always going, always doing. And just over time, chipping away at the reality that you are not God, friend. You need to rest. And God has created our bodies oftentimes as like these warnings that kind of remind us of this. It's called sickness. 
Sickness is like a gift from God. Number one, this world is not perfect. It's affected by the fall. And number two, you are not God. God has never been sick a day in his life. He will never get sick. But you and I are often struck with sickness to remind us that we are not God, that we need to rest, and teaches us dependence. Number four, as a caution about work, work is not your identity. As I spoke to earlier, I want to just mention again, sometimes you do need to change your place of employment. Sometimes you do not. But it's not because of your identity. You should be very clear about that. I think about... uh, you know, teenagers, and obviously as a dad of teenagers, I'm familiar with this conversation, but there's oftentimes understanding of like, what do you want to do? And the answer to that question can be kind of confusing because the answer for the person answering it is like, what do I want to do? And or what do I want to be known for doing? And those aren't necessarily the same. Sometimes we want to be able to say an answer of what we're known for doing as a way to have people think well of us. But that's actually not what we want to do. When you think that way, that's often showing you're you're exposing that you've got your identity attached to your work. And your insecurity is driving why you decide to do what you want to do. Now, there's other bad reasons to be driven by what you want to do as well. So I just want to be clear as to recognize Work is not your identity. Number five, you are not providing for yourself. God is providing for you. You are not providing for yourself. God is providing for you. And I know that can be very hard to kind of get your mind wrapped around. And the best way I can sort of describe this to you by way of consideration is, I know that you think you are responsible for your physical vitality. You know, as long as you eat somewhat responsibly and you don't lift weight that's too crazy heavy and you drive responsibly in the road, your physical ability to engage in society, sit, stand, carry, walk, talk, is your doing. Friends, that is, while that is true, there's a stewardship of what's entrusted to you, your actual life. God sometimes just gives us like injured backs for no reason to just remind us. Like it just takes like a nerve being touched in your spinal cord, and you're like on the floor like an invalid. To be reminded like how, how insignificant you are in your ability to like secure your tomorrow physically. My point in giving that physical connection is back to the idea of your financial provision, you're not providing for yourself. I know that you think you are because it feels rather transactional. I provide a service, and in exchange for that service, I'm rewarded compensation. That seems humanly understandable. Friends, God is designing things much bigger and much grander than what's simply happening here. I say this because here's how this will backfire on you. If you think you're providing for yourself, if you think that like, you know what, I, I have done this in exchange for this, you will begin to justify spending your money as a reward on yourself for what you have provided for yourself. I find at times, tracing people's spending habits to a selfishness and a way of thinking of an entitlement. I earned this. I deserve this. I provided this for myself. You are a demigod when you think like that. 
as opposed to God has given me my eyes, my sight, my hearing. God has given me my job. Could do to provide for it. God has given me my employment and my housing. God has given me my mind and my mouth. What does God want me to do with all of this, including my money? It is all from the Lord. My time, my relationships, my money. Number six, as a caution about work. God has given you other roles besides employee or employer. This includes being a Christian member of your local church, a member of your family, a citizen of your nation. You have a responsibility in those areas of, of relationship. As a pastor, I will see people get those often imbalanced. They'll often weight one heavier than others. They'll be heavy in family, commendably light in church. Heavy in church, light in occupation, vocation, their area of employment. They'll be engaged as citizens involved in the affairs of our government and yet neglecting the care of brothers and sisters in their local church. You have to understand God has called you to this. I uh, was meeting uh, this past week with somebody from Grace Church, and I said, let me just speak to you for a second about how you think through your priorities. I said, I would imagine the way you think through your priorities is that you probably think through your priorities in a list sequentially from one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and however long your list goes. And you probably think to yourself, hey, number one is God. I know I should have, my number one priority is God. Okay, number two, if I'm married, I should probably say my wife. So number two is wife. Number three, we had kids, we should say kids. Number four or five, I'm a little confused. Should I say church or job? Because I feel like if I say church, then I'm, I'm elevating above job because I got wife and kids, I'm supposed to provide for them. So, so I think I should maybe say, I don't know, can you have a four-way, can you have a two-way tie for four? I don't know, but, I, but I've got some list there. So let's go ahead and say church because it seems spiritually right. And then job is number five. Number six is maybe an extended family. And you, you can see how the list goes. Very common if you think this way. I imagine most of you in this room probably think this way. And inevitably what happens is once you get the list, maybe never actually written out, but it's just sort of intrinsically thought, you will inevitably find a time in your life, and it's going to happen repeatedly, where your list is out of order. It's out of order because your decisions are out of order. You know what I'm talking about. Like you, you, your kids are more important than your job, but you went to that meeting and said you would go to your kid's baseball game. And now you're like, what do I do? Or you stayed late at work as opposed to going to the midweek community group. And you're like, man, is now my work more important than my job? I mean, my church. What ends up happening is you end up having a ton of implied guilt that you somehow, not quite sure where in the Bible, but you somehow are just like, God's not pleased with you. You're all whack. Friends, that's not how God's word works. In fact, let's go back to our list. Jesus' understanding of your priorities, with God being number one, is in such an extreme statement that he says, your love for me should be so great that your love for me, by comparison and contrast, unless you hate your mother or your father, your brother, sister, or your very self, you cannot be my disciple. So now it looks like God is so jealous, he wants to be the only one. 
And nothing else is allowed to be on the list. Now, the context of that statement is the cost of discipleship. But the idea is, not only is God number one, he is in some sense principally the only one you're seeking to please. But now let's go practically to the word of God. So here's God's word. You got 66 books written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors. You got anything from Genesis to Revelation. You got prophets. You got epistles. God, what do you want from me? So some of you might go, okay, great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so I'll begin there. Or great commission. Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them how to obey all that I commit. Okay, so I start there. So okay, okay, got that. Now, what's number two on my list? What happens is God says, here is the word. Go ahead and obey it. Now, what ends up happening inevitably is apart from the gospel, this becomes what Galatians says it's going to become, condemning. The law overwhelms you, which brings you to the end of yourself that you cannot please God through what you do. So you're reminded through the law of God that you need the Son of God to be an advocate and a representation for you so you put your faith not in your works, not in your list of priorities, not in the fact that you kept it all in line like a good little you know, soldier for God, but that Christ has accomplished perfection. Now with that reality... You now work, you now live, you now carry your priorities as an expression of obedience and in response to his salvation of you. But here's the deal. You don't go from a list of one to 100. Think of it now as not a list. Think of it as a spinning wheel of rotation where God brings to your attention through his word and through the leading of the Holy Spirit directing your conscience of things you might be neglecting that you need to now give attention to. Not because you have failed the list, but because now he's bringing something to your attention. So that when Russell, Jude, says to his father, Chris Jude, hey, dad, I feel like we could be spending more time together. It is not saying Chris is now disqualified from ministry. He has been neglecting his son. It is God is using through the mouthpiece of his son, getting Chris's attention. This is now calling for your attention to give attention to. And now you have freedom through the word of God, led by the spirit of God, that your conscience being informed by the responsibility God gives you. I say this because as you think about your roles in relationship, they're always changing in how they're being displayed and being pursued. You should balance those, prayer for that, and get good counsel and accountability from each other so that people can help you see where maybe your roles are out of balance. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.